Grandma Cat Jeter, what a pleasure and an honor it is to have you with us today on Hemp Barons. Thank you so much for being with us. It is truly my pleasure to be here with you, Joy. Well, we have been friends, sisters, comrades, colleagues for quite some time. You are one of my favorite human beings in the hemp and cannabis movements. Uh, but I, I want to set the audience up here for, for just how amazing you are. Born in England and, of course, raised as a baby boomer during the baby boom. You're a mother. You're a grandmother. You're a businesswoman, accountant a Cold War Army veteran, a world travel, an electoral candidate, a lifelong activist, and one of the most valuable members and elders that we have in the hemp and cannabis communities, both here in the state of Washington, the Pacific Northwest, the nation, and beyond. I know that your very first protest was the very first Earth Day in April of 1970, when you were a mere sophomore in high school, you have spoken all over the United States and in North America on legalization, on the many gifts that the cannabis and hemp plants bring. You are absolutely recognized worldwide in the community for your tremendous expertise and your passion and your knowledge. And we love that you continue to advise the young and the old about the healing benefits of this incredible plant. And we are so happy to have you with us today to do that because my listeners, as I've explained to you before on Hemp Barons, have been exposed to academia, to some of the greatest cannabinoid scientific minds in the world. And it is all very heady and multisyllabic. But I want to bring you on, Grandma Cat, to describe to us and explain to us in common sense, layman, one-on-one, -on -one, regular old American citizen terms about the endocannabinoid system and all kinds of issues around hemp extract and cannabidiol. You think you can do that with us today? Oh, do you think we can pack it all in? You know I'm verbose. <laughs> Thank you so much for such a warm welcome. It is my pleasure to do whatever I can to help you and your listeners. Thank you. Ten times over. And with that, we're just going to get right into it. Let's start with what is the endocannabinoid system, Grandma Cat? You know, I like to think of it, and I think we're still defining it. Let's be clear about that. It's one of the poorest taught systems in anatomy. Um, I think I heard last that about 15% of anatomy classes now talk about the endocannabinoid system. But it is the single largest signaling system within the body. In other words, cannabinoids have very little direct effect, turns out, but they have direct effect on systems that then fine-tune their own performance so if you remember the old BASF commercials, uh, BASF chemical company doesn't make audio tape, it makes audio tape better. It doesn't make gasoline, it makes gasoline better. Cannabis is like that, the plant and the various cannabinoids and the various lipids, waxes and, and uh, constituents of the entire plant, turns out they make your own systems work better. And that's what the endocannabinoid system is. So when I have parents ask me who are unbelieving that there can be this huge effect for their child, um, they say, well, how come it can work on a GI system as well as it can work immediately on my child's epilepsy, as well as it can maybe work on cancer processes for another child? Well, it's because it doesn't do any of those things. 
it resolves the signal so that your own body knows how to address those issues on its own. And it's a complex series of biochemical responses and markers and receptors and all of these wonderful things that I know a little teeny tiny bit about. But if you need to know more, you can find a biochemist. I understand you've had Ethan Russo on before, one of the finest authorities that we have in various aspects. But, you know, it's it's a very holistic type of process in which I suggest to folks it's like eating for health when you consume various cannabinoid constituents. And there's no one formula yet that we can point at in science for any one thing. It's one of those, stay tuned, new science is coming tomorrow. <laughs> and, and also getting to know our own bodies. It's also forcing us to know who we, and forcing our healthcare professionals and providers to get to know who we are with our individual unique bodies as well. My understanding is, of course, that endocannabinoid systems are like snowflakes. They're unique. We each have a very unique ECS or endocannabinoid system. Is that correct? And, homeo- and homeostasis, right? Homeostasis being the point of balancing where your body is operating at peak performance, right? Um, that could be different for you, for me. You might run a little slower. I might run a little faster. Um, you know, find me two identical humans and likely you've got identical twins on your hand, although my personal experience with identical twins is they're frequently not identical at all. <laughs> so, yeah, again, more, more pointing at the individuation of your own body systems. And cannabis is, is like grease, you know. It merely greases your endocannabinoid system. So if, you're, if your GI is upset, it operates better. If your kidney is a problem, you know, turns out cannabidiol locks right in and makes even more receptors in, in sick kidneys, asking for more CBD. Literally, your body begs for it once you know how to begin to explore that nutritive process with the plant. So fantastic. And and when we talk about homeostasis, and I love that you say, you know, we're still defining it, right? Because we want to believe that we've come up with this definition. The endocannabinoid system is the master regulator of homeostasis. And then last week I was at another conference and we talked about uh, it was it didn't have anything to do with uh, hemp or cannabis and listeners, of course, hemp is of the genus cannabis. So we're talking with grandma cat today. She's not differentiating a whole lot. We are talking about the genus cannabis, which of course it's uh, if it's below at or below 0.3% THC, that genus cannabis is legally defined as hemp. If it is above 0.3% Delta nine THC, then in many States that is legally defined as medical or end or adult use cannabis. So grandma cat will be using that term, but we're talking about all of it here. So we like to think that we've got this definition where, uh, oh, and and so that this other uh, conference that I was at, by the way, had nothing to do with cannabis. And it was like, yes, and this is the master regulator of homeostasis. And I was like, whoa, okay. Apparently, we're now competing to be the master regulator for homeostasis. So yes, we are indeed defining it. And and homeostasis, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar 
understanding that, you know, we have these complex systems that Kat just talked about, all kinds of these systems, respiratory, uh, vascular, in, you know, digestive, all of these things. And they all have to work and behave and accomplish their goals and their duties, no matter what kind of stresses we're dealing with in our external environment. And so how do those, how do homeostasis is basically, how do we regulate all of those systems when, you know, we were just in a car accident and we're all stressed out or we just got terrible news or somebody that we're in love with is broken up with us or that we're starving or we're freezing. Those are all external examples of external um, factors that will would affect us, but for the fact that our bodies are brilliant machines and they have to keep operating despite uh, those external factors. And we have found that cannabinoids, these incredible um, endocannabinoids, which are made in our body, endocannabinoids means it's a cannabinoid made within our bodies, phytocannabinoids are cannabinoids that are from plants. We only know of one plant that creates actual phytocannabinoids. That's a cannabis plant. Again, hemp, whatever it is, medical adult use. Um, and then there are, of course, cannabimimetic phytochemicals, which are uh, properties in plants that can manipulate, antagonize, or stimulate, or modulate the endocannabinoid receptor, um, but they are not actual cannabinoids. So with that, is there anything that you can add before we move on to the extracts themselves that you want to discuss around endocannabinoid versus phytocannabinoid and or breast milk? Didn't know if you had a wise woman word for us there, Grandma Cat. You know, I think some of the wise words that I rely on are try to live close to the earth, right? Our ancestors did it pretty daggone successfully for millennia uh, before we got the advances with science. And I think there's a lot can be learned by looking back in addition to leveraging science as it becomes available to live our best possible lives, right? We know this. Shop around the edge of your supermarket, not down the aisles where there's all the processed foods, you know. And and this is just good common sense. And I think, you know, the cannabis or the hemp plant just goes hand in hand with good common sense. 150 years ago, it was, you know, existential for our great-grandmothers and great-grandfathers, um, not only for its hemp value, but also for its medicinal value. Um, so live naturally and uh, consider, consider cannabis or hemp products. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think too, where I was going with that, and I apologize because, and I'm so thrilled because we needed to hear everything that you just said. Where I think I was going with that was really, you know, our very first as babies, if we are blessed enough to be breastfed, and of course I breastfed both of my children, our very first experience would be in these, would be endocannabinoids from our mother's breast milk. And because, absolutely, because cannabis, hemp in general, not only did the authorities that be want to remove the plant itself from our consciousness, 
They wanted to remove all knowledge and effectively did remove all knowledge of the plant from our consciousness. And so we're getting those first endocannabinoids in breast milk without even realizing. I mean, I was a hardcore activist by the time I had my first children, my first child, 1992 and 1994. And yet, despite all of that knowledge and wisdom and vim and vigor, um, I had no idea that that in give, breastfeeding my child that I was delivering endocannabinoids, nor uh, did I have any idea, if I didn't know about the endocannabinoid system at the time, that once I stopped breastfeeding, um, and my body is producing the endocannabinoids because I'm producing breast milk. But once I stop producing that breast milk and stop feeding my child, my child then stops getting those cannabinoids. I'm, of course, not replenishing those cannabinoids with any type of hemp extract, dietary supplement, or food additive. Because, of course, in 1992 and 1994, when I gave birth, um, respectively, those products were not available to us. So my children and all of us then immediately go into an endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. And so that's kind of where I was going at it when, when I was playing on your um, words of once your endocannabinoid system starts getting some of those cannabinoids back and it starts to feed that deficiency, it starts to beg for them. Anything that you want to elaborate on that for us? Oh, boy, we might be here for an hour or so. <laughs> yeah, you certainly left the field wide open there. Well, I, allow me to just say this. I, it's, I consult with an awful lot of parents whose children are having a variety of health issues that following down the path of allopathic medicine uh, tends to just become more and more um, harmful to the children. I mean, these medicines have actual factual side effects um, that can become very problematic. And we tend to infer that our children are pharmaceutically small adults, and it is not uh, the true situation. And I think there's more and more empowerment and understanding about that all the time. Nonetheless, it, you know, as we look historically at what you know, used to be considered healthy living and can by extension be inferred to continue to be healthy living other than uh, the interruption of prohibition, you find that, yes, children frequently with the hemp supplements are getting the complex fats, the, the waxes, fats, and lipids, we like to call them from, from the cannabis side of things, um, that we used to clean them out of all products because we thought um, they were harmful or at least got in the way. Turns out some of our most recent science on what we call these waxes, fats, and lipids turns out they might be the most valuable substance within the plant um, itself, that it just provides, um, although a poorly documented at this point, regimen, a, a regimen nonetheless for health. And I think we could infer that that would include stimulating a, a nascent endocannabinoid system. Um, you know, you're leaving your body doing twice as much work to try to compensate for the lack of healthy nutraceutical cannabis or hemp products in your body. Um, so it's an interesting point. I don't know that I had thought about the cause and effect quite so much, but certainly I cannot tell you how many parents I talk to about their kids 
and frequently we find that very serious concerns from conduct disorders to uh, gastrointestinal or anxiety issues are, are easily resolved with a level, again, dosing of cannabis has been going through a revolution recently. We find that as little as one or two milligrams can profoundly affect the performance of the human body. That is just so far from what we consider a dose or a serving size. And can you elaborate the one or two milligrams of? Okay. Um, I, I'm going to say a variety of things. Um, you know, what you're looking for is it can come from any variety of products, but certainly um, the various cannabinoids are found at various places of the plant. So we have everything to choose from, from oils to fiber to um, medicines made from an extraction of the various sebaceous glands, it, you know, and we're, we're fe- it's like feeling our way around a dark cave with a, with a small light, right? We can illuminate various bits of it, but we are fighting to know the whole science of the plant, even as we're trying to legislate around it as though we know the whole thing. Um, it's, it's a frustrating situation that um, it, sadly is inviting too few serious players to conduct peer-reviewed science with um, efficiency so that we can nail some of these dark boxes down and we can begin to say things with certitude, right? That's our problem right now. You have folks like myself, I consider myself a guide because there's very little hard science. There's eyes wide open and paying attention, limited science, typically conducted in Petri dishes, and uh, a whole lot more questions than answers. And so, so perfect and such a great segue because I think now what we could do is if you could take us on a journey, Kat, of, you know, we, until the hemp-derived CBD and hemp extract hit us like a ton of bricks in 2014 or so, although it was being contemplated and discussed among, you know, cannabis intellectual minds around 2011. Um, but it came out like it blindsided us. Um, and thank goodness all of these discoveries have been made. I mean, it has brought science forward. Uh, we, we certainly have brought hemp and its cannabinoids, extracts, and derivatives into the broad light of day no longer under the shackles of the Controlled Substances Act. But up until this time, and certainly traditionally, as we uh, have worked for decades to free the plant, which is in a Schedule 1, and as it sits today, still cannabis above 0.3% Delta 9 THC is still in a Schedule 1 state, saying it has no medical value, which is just beyond ridiculous, an absolute crime. We used to really believe and put all of our faith and hope into cannabis oil. And I'll use the dictionary here so that that when I say cannabis, folks know, unlike what I said earlier, we're talking about the whole plant, marijuana. So we were talking about um, extracts and oils for healing that were coming from plants that were not just above 0.3% THC, but in many cases far above 0.3% THC. And in more of the modern day, we would call this extract Rick Simpson oil. Now, if you could take us on the journey of your own relationship and belief and philosophy around why that was sort of the holy grail 
versus, or not versus, but incorporating the new science and the new discoveries and experiences that you've made with the folks that you are guiding around hemp extract, sort of the evolution sister from Rick Simpson oil to what you are guiding folks with now. I think, Joy, I'd like to take it back one step further, which would be to the mid-1800s, where the British and Americans and folks in various British Empire colonies begin to hear about a tincture of this miraculous plant from India and from the Middle East. And so this is where we first start first start finding our first medical references to the tincture of cannabis oil. And it was the most widely uh, prescribed, if we want to call it that, from an apothecary product um, over widely over and above any other product at the turn of the 20th century. It became so popular so quickly. And what it was, was just like any herbal extract, extract of peppermint or extract of basil, um, extract of cannabis is simply using a solvent. And in this case, it's still the same way that I do it, using a concentrated human-grade alcohol, ethanol. Um, And what you do is you pull all of the plant constituents away from the cellulose or uh, the, you could think of it as the body matter, uh, the bones and skin of the cannabis plant. And we end up with a rich solution of all of the phytocannabinoids, um, all of the waxes, all of the fats, all of the lipids, everything except the cellulose, which is left behind. And then it's reduced to Um, remove the ethanol and leave only that sticky substance behind, which lots of folks like to call RSO, honoring Rick Simpson, who resurrected this knowledge in the 1980s and 90s. Um, More properly, it's called a FECO, a full extract of cannabis oil. And I don't differentiate that whether I'm extracting from the highest THC cannabis or um, the highest CBD or CBG cannabis. CBG being the newest cannabinoid available to us via commercial hemp and super exciting. Um, So once you have that and the product has been tested, you can come up with a value for the cannabinoids that are available in that product. And then you can use simple chemistry um, and understanding of ratios to break that down into exact serving size medicines um, or or, uh, supplements. Uh, depending, I suppose, on whether you're coming from that marijuana or hemp side. (laughs) We've got our uh, vocabularies twisted up if we want to, I guess, um, refer to what we would normally call marijuana as any type of a supplement in that we've already begun to use the words dosing uh, and medicines for, for it. We have so many disconnects in the in the language around um, various cannabis products and bringing it to regulated and legislated arenas. Indeed. I, and I, I see it a lot as, as regulation and law, of course, is unfolding ad nauseum, excessive style uh, for hemp. While I'm watching, you know, because here in the state of Washington, as you well know, 
medical cannabis was legalized in 1998. Adult use cannabis was legalized in 2012. And finally, in 2016, we eked out the legalization of hemp (laughs) and already had over 10 million square feet of legal adult use and medical cannabis growing in the state of Washington before we even planted our very first um, hemp seed here. It feels like everything is either a circle, circuitous, however it is you say that, um, or, or at least a twisted path. You know, I grew up around hemp and the state actively trying to eradicate it since my home state was one of those allowed to raise hemp post the tax act for uh, the Navy during World War Two. Uh, and just grows prolifically there. Totally. And then they'll do, just to finish the thought, though, sister, just to finish the thought, though. So I'm watching as we're in the hemp world, I, there is no, we're federally legal. So whether the, the the FDA, of course, has has continued to refuse and continue to drag its feet to create a regulatory framework for CBD or hemp extract, having said that, if you're in the United States of America and you are engaged in the manufacture, production, distribution, holding, selling, labeling packaging of food and dietary supplements of dietary supplements or of cosmetics you are in fact regulated by the code of federal regulation so there's no hiding anymore for hemp we're federally legal in the broad light of day so we have to follow those rules and and you know i i have so many folks who work in other areas of cannabis in multiple states we have 19 states with adult use cannabis 36 states with medical cannabis and using you know those words potency and dose and wouldn't wouldn't hemp love it if it could use those words but as you have well articulated sister we are relegated to strength and di- and serving size as opposed to potency um and dose but But if you could deliver on that journey, so we've given them the history. And of course, when you say most popular, we're talking about, you know, the golden age of the cannabis apothecary between 1850 and 1937, where we're talking Eli Lilly, Parky Davis, Johnson & Johnson. There were five pages of cannabis preparations in the U.S. Pharmacopeia by 1925, incredibly popular. But how then... Though that information, and we won't get lost in that, there was actually the Cannabis Americana, which was very much a one-to-one ratio. And in the Cannabis Compendium, um, which I am so honored to have uh, edit, edited with John Wirt chapter of the Cannabis Museum, we go into the proof and the history of that Cannabis Americana and these attempts for one-to-one. But how did we get from there to hemp extract and what you are finding in real life with the folks who you are assisting and guiding. So, you know, as you say, we, we certainly went through um, a, a, let's call it a renaissance of reaching back into our past. And really, as you correctly point out, the early states um, reaching back for this right and this privilege and this knowledge. Um, We had what was being left to us as an antecedent um, via prohibition, right? Um, So most of our stocks of the cannabis plant were high THC, which is what drove us towards the idea that high THC cannabis oil was the cannabis oil that 
was to be used. As we look back with more of a critical eye, um, even as we are advancing um, the the uh, commonplace use of various cannabinoid oils, um, we are finding that there's a lot more texture to the picture than what we originally resurrected. And my own journey has been along those lines. When I first began creating and manufacturing cannabis oils under the Washington laws to help children and vets, um, it was almost exclusively high THC oils. Um, as you point out, in the early part of the last decade, we began finding more and more CBD content in our oils and began desiring that because of the synergistic effect of the cannabinoids. We've been fortunate enough now to add CBG, cannabigerol, to that. And the more we add back to this plant, the more we find, and this isn't just my opinion, I mean, this comes from talking to patients, uh, the more we are finding better relief, better holistic results, um, it complies with with federal law to boot, um, you know, so couldn't be happier news across the board. Um, but again, we are still, anyone who suggests they know everything about cannabis, I reject them as any type of an expert, because we are at the dawn of resurrecting um, our ancient knowledge, if that's even possible, and adding to it the scientific knowledge. We are beginning to understand bits and pieces about this plant um, and we feel oh so confident and pat ourselves on the back as we talk about, you know, 13 various cannabinoids and constituents. Uh, but we've got, you know, another another five times that more at least to work our way through. And the more we think we know about a various cannabinoid, the more we find out we do not know. Turns out cannabigerol is nothing but a lipid. It's a, it's a fat, a wax, the type of thing we used to clean out of various concentrates. So there you are, cleaning out the mother of all cannabinoids. Um, and it, it comes from a place of ignorance fostered by prohibition. Thank you, Prohibition, for arresting the development of research and science on arguably one of the most amazing plants on the planet. It maybe is the most amazing plant on the planet. We don't know. We're just getting to start to research it. <laughs> right? Nothing like doing it with one hand tied behind your back. <laughs> My good Lord. And the shackles loosen up a little bit. They loosen up. They loosen here. They loosen there. The bricks in the wall are coming down. And so ultimately, you went from, and of course, we were able to do that here in, in the state. You have been a caregiver, a moral caregiver, um, and for years, uh, creating these oils for people in need under the structure that we had here in the legal structure that we had here in Washington state until the last, oh, seven years or so. 
but you have moved into uh, hemp extracts. And, and tell us why. And I know you just touched upon it in your last response, Grandma Cat, but you are, you are using mostly hemp extract now and not because that's more legal for you, not because that makes you feel more comfortable. That's not how you operate. You <laughs> operate on a moral basis um, as opposed to a, I'm going to follow the letter of the law a basis. So tell us about that transformation and how, in fact, you are using mostly hemp extract these days. Well, it just happened organically. Uh, you know, we began um, working with CBD. Let's say we probably had our first batch through here about 2013. And it became very, very popular um, very, very quickly that we match it up um, with a one-to-one relationship. And that was our best-selling product as we closed out the medical era here in Washington. As I added CBG and also began calibrating my that very thick, pitchy medicine uh, into exact dosing or exact serving amounts, I looked up and suddenly realized I had become a legal product under federal law that by making it to where patients aren't over-consuming cannabinoids, not that that's a problem to their body, but sometimes more is just more. It doesn't really have any value to you. Uh, so as we began leaning into that exact serving dose or exact dose, um, I realized this was, had become a legal product with no cannabinoid constituent going over 0.3%. So golly, if if it's going to be that way, you know, it, not everybody has to go through me if it becomes a product available on the web and folks who think or are competent and it's an easy product to work with. Um, I say as long as you follow one rule and that's go low and go slow. You can always take more tomorrow, but if you take too much, it can be a problem. <laughs> Um, you know, that it, it was time that it became a product available for wider consumption than someone who is having to go through me. And what are you finding anecdotally and experientially wise with the folks that you assist uh, in terms of efficacy? Um, I find that the closer we come back to what we believe might have been a historical uh, precedent for the plant, the better broad coverage. If, if I was looking for one ratio, uh, the more diversified it becomes, the better I find that it works. Um, I'm really looking forward to nailing down some of the other cannabinoids in, uh, in hemp products going forward. Uh, there's a lot of enterprising geneticists out there. Again, an area I don't know how to do it, but I sure know what to do with it when they get it for me. So um, I can see even broader diversity of um, products with a popular um, product being a one to one to one to one to one. Who knows how many ones we will have in there? I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface on so many things that offer seem to offer promise for us. Um, THCV and CBDV both being tied closely to um, the digestive system and the regulatory system for digestive functions, including insulin, uh, seem to offer some tremendous promise for us. That's a couple that I hope to see pretty quickly as additional cannabinoids available with dominance in hemp strains. Absolutely. God, I love that you said the Varens, as it were. When we say V, we're talking about the Varens. Yes, I love Um, them. 
Yes. And I'm seeing those products right now, uh, you know, coming out CBD, CBDV and THCV is a, is a very interesting combination. And there's some wonderful new products uh, right coming now, out of the market in that. Right now, most regard. of those seem to be biomass converted or some type of a chemical conversion process. So hopefully we'll see some dominance within the actual plant itself so that we can do more simple extraction processes. Yes, or a precision spectrum as it was, because I, I have a client who is working with this product and they're not isolates and they're not isomerized, but they are what we would call more of a precision spectrum. So meeting your spec and remediating so that you're getting a concentration of those cannabinoids. And yes, it takes a ton of biomass to, to get it done, but, but by and large, 110%. We want naturally occurring cannabinoids, concentrated Concentrated through extraction, fine, but these isomerized synthetic cannabinoids, no bueno and no thank you until there's uh, more regulation on the reactionary solvents used, the cleaning of those contaminants, and more science on what uh, the potential is. Let me ask you this. There are two more things as we come to a close, but it's something interesting that you and I have spoken on before. And I wanted, I, I think that the listeners may benefit from it. And, and again, when we're talking about this high Delta 9 THC, Delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol being, of course, the cannabinoid that causes intoxication, how did, and when you say, you know, going back to historically what the plant really looked like, how did the plant go from what was essentially a pretty low THC plant with some uh, high CBD in it to this incredible, you know, Maui, wowie, wacky, tabacky, high Delta 9 THC varieties or strains that we see now. Could you explain that to the listeners? I, I think I asked, I think I heard you asking, we're breaking up a little bit about the change from a low THC type of plant to a high THC plant. And yes, we've, we've talked this one over, uh, you know, that's a direct result of prohibition and the constant assumption on government's part that they could stop a well-motivated group of young people uh, from consuming their cannabis plants. And, you know, it, it really began to reach ahead in the 1980s as, as the government doubled down on eradication of cannabis within the United States. And they did it by, you know, essentially poisoning our supply, flying over and spraying with Paraquat, which, uh, I think I saw that a legal company is now uh, filing suits on paraquat usage or something. At any rate, it, it drove cannabis producers inside. And if you're going to, you know, this is simple economics from this point, if you're going to drive someone inside to replicate an outdoor growing process, it's going to require more resources. So they're going to expect a much higher return. That can be cash or that can be um, more raw product at the end of the process, or it can be, as in cannabis's case, both. It caused an increase both in potency as well as uh, the value of a pound of cannabis within the United States. Um, and Again, direct cause and, cause and effect, direct result to the government attempting to poison everyone who consumed cannabis in the United States. Thanks, government. 
So good. So good job, government. You tried to eradicate the plant. Well, that's not happening because human beings want the plant. So what you ended up doing was driving the plant indoors and then making really high potent plants. Thanks. I guess that didn't work, but apparently the the drug war has also miserably failed and not worked. Two last things. I know I said two a second ago, but I've got two more. And that is, you said something so meaningful to folks who are going, how do I even start to take this stuff? Where do I begin? And you said, start low and slow. Can you explain what that means in your grandma wise woman way? Absolutely. And this is one of those, everyone's always asking for, what are the rules about cannabis? And I say, the only rule is start low, go slow. What does that mean? To me, that means cut what's considered a beginner's dose in half, right? If someone says, oh, here's a beginner's dose with some type of authority, then cut that baby in half. In, in, um, in specific terms, I'll put this in canine terms. I had someone give me a call about a canine the other day. Happened to be about the same same size as my old Lucy dog. And that's about 25 kilos. As you um, figure out the calculation, a good starting dose for that dog would have been in the two to three um milligram range of of CBD, of any cannabinoid in my mind. Some people react to CBD like they are taking THC. Some people react to THC like they're taking CBD. So there is no safe cannabinoid in, they're all safe, but there there is, for a safe place, always cut that in half, right? And then you'll know if you have one of those unfortunate reactions, which won't harm you, but it might make you feel really uncomfortable. And the same with a beloved companion. So in that case, we took that two to three milligrams and we cut it in half, right? With various cannabinoids, different doses are considered various safe levels. So always in my mind, do your research, know what a safe level is, know what a state level is, and then cut that thing in half twice, right? When folks in Washington are asking me about relief with THC using one of our legal stores, I tell them that the legal dose is 10 milligrams for an adult, but why don't you cut that in half twice? Because If two and a half does the job, why would you want to take 10 just because it's legal? Uh, And many people can make a meaningful change in their their body's operations and in their affect, right? The way they feel every day um, with small doses of cannabis. If that doesn't work tomorrow, double that dose and see if that's the dose that works for you. You're still at half of what a recommended dose for a specific cannabinoid is. And I feel like the same thing is true with CBD and CBG, and especially working with parents of children who are traumatically ill. Even them, we start super low and go super low at that five milligram for all cannabinoids. In, in suspension is where we start and we work up, albeit aggressively from there, 
that's still where we start to make certain there aren't any concerns. Indeed, start slow and low. Uh, Dr. Philip Blair, who's one of my favorite endocannabinoid system and cannabinoid medical professionals, you know, often says for vulnerable populations, meaning below the age of seven or above the age of 70 to to really start low. He even, when we're talking about hemp extract or or CBD, he even talks about starting at five milligrams. Um, And if you aren't getting the desired effect, moving up to 10, moving up to 15 until you do. Oftentimes, of course, folks say, and different types of microencapsulation and proprietary formulations can make these products more bioavailable. But generally speaking, my understanding is that hemp extract or CBD stays in the system around every six hours. Um, but again, starting low, starting slow, increase until you're getting the effect that you are looking for. And by effect, I mean, is it an anxiety issue uh, or, or I would say situational stress? Because of course, we would never use a dietary supplement for a disease state like anxiety. So nervousness, occasional stress. Uh, is it a sleep issue during occasional periods of restlessness? Um, or is it a gastrointestinal issue? All of those things when we say that effect and move up from there, but it forces us to to really learn our body. What is happening in my body when I take this plant, this botanical extract? Finally, as we come to a true close here in our time together, Grandma Kat, and it has been so wonderful having you, is there a message that you want to make sure that you leave our audience with? I, I think so, Joy. You know, I would encourage folks to trust what their grandmothers, great-grandmothers knew, you know. Trust in your own body, in your own ability to make common sense out of what you are feeling. And once you become what I like to say is can a competent and can a confident then you have a basis for improving not only your own life, but also spreading the word to other people who haven't heard. And if we all take these steps, it's going to be easy for us to to continue to advocate for legislation and common sense regulation in a bold way that is going to allow us to enjoy the benefits of this plant going forward. Gosh, man. Cat Jeter for president, everybody. I've said it many times. I don't think I'm ever going to stop saying it. Grandma Cat, I'm so lucky to have you. We're so lucky to have you in the community here in Washington, the Pacific Northwest, the national North American and global cannabis community. Thank you for everything you do, everything you are, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Joy, for what you do and for this opportunity. Until next time, sister. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.